Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, actually. October third. Well, you know, we we're we have been, yeah, we're we're busy. We don't we don't necessarily do it on Sunday. We uh, especially NFL season. Let's can't. be honest, it was just too rainy and gloomy yesterday. We were with Hazi, that's what we were doing. <laughs> be honest. You can be honest. Hazi is uh, is a full time job. There's no saying to Hazi uh, here, snuggle up with this book for an hour and a half. We're doing Yeah, we were helping out with Hazi. But um our grandson. Yes. And uh, you know, as young parents know, you don't have time to read the paper. No. When there's an 18-month-old in the house. Let alone talk about it. Yeah, Especially so. a powerful 18-month-old who just, uh, you know, you got to keep an eye on. you got to keep an eye on every second. So it's October 3rd. October 1st, my father would have been 100 years old. Wow. Mm. So I actually uh, found an old photograph mm-hmm. of him taken with his grandfather. And he's pretty young in it. Your father, or your yeah, father? my father. Yeah. So yeah. I, so I think I guess so. I assume the photograph is a hundred years old. Yeah, sure. So that's kind of funny. You wouldn't think that uh, you can get a photograph a hundred years old that easily, but I guess you can. Yeah. Um, well, it's only the 1920s. that shows you how old we are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it used to be a hundred-year-old photograph would have been uh, Lincoln. You know. Yeah. <laughs> no longer the case, I guess. No. Things have changed. Um. But uh, generally a beautiful time of year here, but uh, we've been getting the remnants of Hurricane Ian. Yeah, thankfully not the real which, thing. Yeah, uh, it's dumping some rain on our area and we need the rain, so yeah. I shouldn't really complain. But no, it is a little gloomy. It's very gloomy. And, yes. uh, and the Giants lost. Uh, no, the Giants won. The Giants won. Yes, the Mets lost. The Mets Try lost. Try to keep this Sorry. straight. I, you know, it's it's so hard. They're, they're so similar in so many ways. No, they're not. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. they're, not they're even different sports, I, you know. All right, so uh, here's something. So I, th- I think we even said something about this on the podcast. They recast Funny Girl, uh, and they... Uh, uh, and, and the lead in particular, Leah Michelle, uh, took over for uh, Beanie Feldstein. Yeah, Leah and Michelle. Leah Michelle of Glee. Of Glee. And the uh, uh, actress everyone loves to hate. Yeah, and I'm not sure why, but I'm not too attuned to that. Maybe there are good reasons, maybe there aren't. It's funny, when you read articles about it, you never see the reasons, but I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I mean, I didn't know anything about it. I don't like her. <laughs> No First reason. Of all, that's not unique for you, you know. <laughs> but my point is this: usually Look, there's some thread of reason. Well, social media is like that, though. A lot of people no, don't know anything about anybody. In I don't life. read anything. I haven't read anything about. Here's the point. Just... Can we get to the main point? The main point. I was on top of things one more time. That's the main point. I said to you, they were casting. You know, the show's not very good. Uh, it's got negative reviews. It's you know withering. With the recasting, I am telling you, this is going to be a hit. I think we should get tickets before they review it. I literally not. You're nodding, but you should say something so people understand. You're actually agreeing with me. And say yes. Dan. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Yeah. We put our money where our mouth is. We bought tickets. And then the review came I out. bought tickets. Yes. And, and You're the kind of guy who will say we should buy tickets. <laughs> and I'm the one who has to follow through. Okay. That's why we're such an effective team. My point is, the review came out a couple of days ago. And it's uh, an overwhelmingly positive review in the Times. It says, Leah Michelle is simply stupendous in the role Streisand made famous, transforming the 64 musical to something better than it is. And Jesse Green does the review. It's over the top. The show is great. He never liked the show, he said. 
I don't necessarily agree with him there, but he's he says that she her performance elevates it, and he recommends it uh, wholeheartedly, to say the least. But it, what's interesting, quite apart from my presence, um, is that uh, it's a funny review, but what he says is kind of right. He says when they sat down to put together the revival as it was a year or so ago, what they did was they, they hired Harvey, Harvey Firestein to meddle with the book, as he puts it, when confusing it further, according to Green, by giving Nick Ornstein, who's the uh, nearly well boyfriend, more to do. And here's the quote from Jesse Green. Nobody cares what Nick does. <laughs> <laughs> which is right. Uh, and this show, which they didn't understand, they just thought it was a normal drama, I guess, and Maybe it's about an underdog who gets a break or something. That's not it. It's about a woman who is a an incandescent talent who finally gets a sliver of a chance to show it and she blows the thing away. That's what the show always was. That's what it is now. And that's what Green says. He's quoting himself here, which is a little bit of a problem too. Without a stupendous fanny to thrill and distract, I wrote at the time, the musical's faults become painfully evident. And then he says, Leah Michelle turns out to be that stupendous fanny. Is so, there any doubt in your mind yeah. that this was all entirely orchestrated? What? What, the, what part of it was orchestrated? That they hired this woman they knew wouldn't be that good. Oh, are you kidding that me? That they had so, Leah Michelle prepping in the background, oh God, ready to been, swoop in, oh taking God. advantage of all her negative press, yeah. making, making it a big cause There's celeb. only one problem with that theory. What? It costs $10 million to do that. They, they, they and yet it can cost $10 million to have an average production just go down the tubes. Okay? They have Toba Felch in it now, too, which is uh, also a step forward. Um uh, who's that woman that she replaced? Janet Lynch. Yeah, yeah. Good. Jane Lynch, yeah. Jane Lynch. All right. Sorry. Uh, yeah, look, we're going to see it. We'll give you a, a, a more uh, specific analysis then, but it's going to be a couple of months. Green sums it up this way. Quote, charismatic performers make the thing they're performing disappear. In effect, they replace it. Their voice becomes its voice. Their skin, its story. Well, we'll see. But we're encouraged. Just gives you the shivers, doesn't it? I'm telling you, when I grew up... Somebody said such okay. nice things about Leah Michelle. My point is, when I grew up in a Jewish family in the 1960s, 1970s, people talk nicely about Fiddler um, on the Roof, but Funny Girl was the show that people got excited about. And we'll talk later about another show about a Jewish family, which is, which is a sad show at, at the end of the podcast. But... Um, you know, uh, you knew that there was something there, and it's a, and it's a great score. Well, I never mind. saw it. I've never seen it on the stage. You know, I never have either. I've only seen the movie. I've never had. Who doesn't love the movie? I don't you love the movie. You are a woman. I yes, am man. I agree with you. That's great. Except it's sung by uh, what's it? Omar, Omar Sharif. Sharif. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Omar Sharif. He's a good-looking guy. Yes. <laughs> well, I'll leave it at that. He Let's made see. an impression. <laughs> On a young Tamsin Granger? On a young Tamsin Granger. All right, all right. So, all right, we'll give him credit for that. We'll give him credit for and that. And wow, people. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, pretty much an anthem of the... When did it come out? Late 60s? Early 70s? No, it was 1964. Okay. Uh, the movie? No, the play. But the song. The song and the play came out in 64. The movie would have come out a couple, three years. But I mean, uh, I just feel like it was always playing. 
people were always singing. But that people. was even before the movie came out. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Speaking of music, uh, well, I don't, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Are you not done? No, no, no. Go ahead. You want to go on and on? <laughs> I was going to say the more one, memories the one from the sixties. It's a funny 70s. show because the one time we were sitting there at uh, at the fireworks uh, where they played, you know, the symphony comes out up in Tinicum, and they came out. The orchestra came and said, "We're going to play overtures, overtures of uh, you know our favorite overtures for musicals." And they play the ones you think they play West Side Story, they play Gypsy, they played Carousel, and I said to you, you know, they're playing the top five in my mind. The only American who thinks this. You know what belongs to the top five? Funny Girl. And then the guy came out and said, and our fifth one, Funny Girl. They played Funny Girl. It's a great score. You're in Bucks County. People know stuff. <laughs> okay, apparently they do. Apparently they do. Um, Back to... Yeah, what? You've my musical interlude. Yeah, go ahead. Apparently there's a new video game yeah. out called Trombone Champ. Mm. That is uh, causing some excitement. Yeah. Apparently, it's a lot of fun. You don't need to know how to play the trombone. Well, that's a start. That's a okay. plus. Okay. Although, we do have people in the family who know how to play the trombone. Knew how to play the trombone. They probably haven't done it in a while, but they just still probably know. And uh, it's uh, it was developed by someone named Don Vecchito. Or Vikido, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Yeah. And uh, it's really not about uh, being a musical genius. It's a it's a license. Uh, playing the trombone can be a license to be weird, be yourself. And uh, so it's, a, it's supposed to be a fairly hilarious experience. PC gamer reviewers are saying it's right up there probably for... Game of the year, and know. we're not kidding. PC gamers still exist. That, that that's news okay. to me. Uh, oh. Okay, <laughs> or um, or whatever the functional equivalent is. I, that's what the article said. So um, it must be true. Uh, so there you have it, trombone champ. It's you probably heard of one called Guitar Hero. Yeah. Okay, so it's the trombone equivalent. But that doesn't tell me anything. I don't know. I don't do these games. So then, neither do I. But I just want you her. Our listeners to be, you know, in the know. Uh, all right. Well, we'll get on it. We'll see. Know what to look for. All right. Uh, all right. Um, all right. You know what else is going on? You can't help it. You can't escape it. It's uh, Aaron Judge has uh, 61 home runs, which they've decided is the most ever in the American League, which I'm sure is correct. Tied Roger Maris, who did it uh, in 1961 of all years. Uh, and of course, I will remember that. And you must remember that a little bit when Maris went and broke Ruth's record or tied Ruth's record, depending on how you look at it. Do you remember that? Were you, were you Not aware really. Of that? Okay. Not really. 61? Yeah, 1961. But the I, funny I thing really about it. I wasn't is, watching a lot of TV all right. in 61. Yeah. Oh, you, okay. So Probably a little bit of reruns of Love That Bob, hmm. Captain Kangaroo. Look at the newspaper. Like listen to the radio. People at the barbershop. We did not listen it. to the radio too much. Did you get out at all? <laughs> I didn't get go to the barber shop. I could go did it. the kids on the street corner? <laughs> None of the kids on the street corner. Right. Go ahead. Tell my me point is, it. you know, look, people were, were going crazy when Maris was approaching the... Going uh, crazy. Because Ruth was a deity. Razor Maris was a nobody by comparison. How did he dare challenge Ruth? And then people got very angry at Maris because of it, honestly. And they said that was a, a, a home remark which would never be approached. The funny thing about it is... It felt at that time that Ruth was 100 years ago and he was sort of, you know, like an Inca god or something like that. 
And it was only from 1927 to 1961 that span of time was, you know, 34 years, right? right? Well, it's been more than 34 years since 1961, it turns out. Uh, many more. It's been more like 60 years, 61 years. So, And finally... Yeah, so it's been a longer time. No one a thinks of Maris as a has arisen. Maris has passed away. They have Maris's uh, descendants are there watching Judge do it. It's all good. I don't really care. I, Judge, I give him all the credit in the world. He's a wonderful hitter. Uh, no question about it. But here's what's interesting to me. Uh, the uh, There's so much attention paid. It's not clear how much the, you know, whatever he ends up with, 63, 64, 65 home runs, the last home run he hits is going to be a record question is what is the ball going to be worth okay why do i bring this up because because you want to be prepared when it comes up on antiques roadshow well it's true too mark mcguire who has 70 home runs and dishonored record now because people decided he was on steroids but at the time you recall people were very excited about that uh that ball the 70th home run was sold to uh, todd mcfarlane who's a comic book uh magnet uh writer and uh, illustrator for $3 million, $3 million for the 70th home run ball, okay? Which isn't even important. Well, now it is, and it's gone down okay. in value. But the point is, this ball is going to be worth at least $3 million. So what happened when Maris hit his 61st home run? Here's the funny thing. At that time, you didn't have the collector craze you have now, okay. except on Antiques Roadshow. Antiques Roadshow wasn't invented. Uh, good. So you didn't have the collector's craze <laughs> at all, all right? But, but that, notwithstanding that, a, a, a restaurant owner, a guy named Sam Gordon in Sacramento, came forward when Maris was gunning for the record and said he would pay $5,000 for the ball mm-hmm. when Maris breaks the record, if he broke the record, whoever catches it, okay? Well, $5,000 in 1961 was a lot of money. So much money that the guys in the Yankees' bullpen, the players, were hoping to catch the ball. They figured they had a good chance. They were in right field. Their pitcher's mm-hmm. on the team. Mm-hmm. But even Whitey Ford, who was a huge star, he's in the Hall of Fame, he only made $36,000 at the time. Mm-hmm. This is $5,000. Yeah. All so right. he's saying, listen, um, five grand was five grand. That's a quarter of Ford. They were trying to catch the ball to get the $5,000. Well, it didn't go into the bullpen. It was caught by a 19-year-old fan from Brooklyn, caught it on a fly in the stands. His name was Sal Durante. And Sal Durante said he wanted to give the ball back to Maris for no money at all, mm-hmm. right? But Maris insisted he keep it and claim the reward. Mm-hmm. Here's the quote from Maris. What do you think of that kid? The boy's planning to get married. He can use the money. He still wanted to give the ball back to me for nothing. It shows there's some good people left in the world after mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. How's that? Mm-hmm. How is that? Yeah. We'll see what happens when Judge hits his. Oh, okay, so we don't know. We're, no, we're, you left I'm us giving, hanging I'm here. giving you an advance notice. You oh, know what okay. to look for. So I'm ready. Okay, you're ready. Go ahead. What do you got? Again, advance notice. <laughs> what? Helping our listeners keep up with the I'm trends. looking forward to this one. Okay. I sense anniversary gift. <laughs> no, don't be crazy. Uh, it's Fashion Week in yes. Paris. Yes, yes. As you may know. Of course. And uh, part of the excitement is that a Parisian brand, Coperni, Mm -hmm. named after Copernicus, right? As one does, yes. Um, Staged quite an extravagant uh, moment in their runway show uh, by spraying on a dress on a model. 
Okay. So the woman is standing there wearing next to nothing. The woman is standing there yeah. wearing pretty much nothing. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the inventor of this process, yeah. the uh, Manel Torres, yeah. who makes this sort of liquid fabric, yeah. is a company called Fabricant. You know, it's used for, you know, potentially, you know, like medical uses, yeah. casts, right. bandages, and so on. He and assistant spray this stuff yeah. onto the model and it becomes a dress All right. and then uh, you know a um a member of the uh, you know uh, fashion house actually pulls it into shape mm-hmm. and uh, cuts it up uh, a little bit to shape it you know pulls down the the um shoulders and creates a leg slit and so on so how so, to look it looked pretty good. Really? It looked a little tight, yeah. but yeah. it did look like fabric. It didn't look like it didn't look like paint. You yeah. know, like you always see the. You remember the spray-on bathing or the painted-on bathing suits on um, Sports Illustrated yeah. models? No, you know. Yes, but go ahead. Really? No, not. Really. I don't believe you for a minute. <laughs> um, but it it really looked like a, it. It has. There's actual fabric. It turns into fabric. No one else can wear it. Okay, you probably can't wear it again a second that, time. That's what I was going to ask. Right. Can you wear it, it a can, second you, time? Apparently, you can take it off and uh, put it in a solution that will reactivate it, whatever that means. Was there a spray-on zipper that goes with it? Because otherwise, how do you yeah, I think, I think it's kind of stretchy. You just kind yeah. of pull. You okay. kind of pull it off. Anyway, the model who wore it, you'll be interested to know, was Bella Hadid. Yeah. Okay. Right. Who's been in New Hope? Right. Yes, yes, because her mom, yeah. Yolanda, yeah. Uh, has a um, estate here. Mm-hmm. Okay, just down the road, Mechanicsville. We probably we drive, we ride near there. We, probably, we do our bike probably ride. behind her in line at the supermarket okay. many times, yeah. and you know, um, and her sister who's also a supermodel, and, right. and you know, we have a supermodel, a former supermodel on our street. You're, so you're getting, I mean, off, you're uh, getting off track here. This is really, you know, I just like to a little shout out. <laughs> For our neighbors, okay? Yeah, all right. I'm sure Bella needs all the help she can get. Yeah, well, but she did say it was like the greatest moment of her life. It, you know, people were definitely. quite excited to see her and all kinds of famous people were talking to her and and so on. Bella Hadid? Yeah. That hadn't happened to her before? Uh, not, I don't know. Not to that extent. Mm-hmm. It was quite... The, the one thing is it was apparently very cold. I don't know if that had to do with... Uh-huh. Due to the process, she was freezing to death. I'll look for that up in the on that stage. If I see a dress that looks uh, unusually clingy in the supermarket, I'll understand, right? It's not for everyone that outfit. Okay, can I just say? Yeah. Uh, all right. So there's an article about uh, salaries, transparency in salaries. Although speaking it, of transparency, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so there are transparency laws some states are enacting, which make clear what everybody in your organization, or could make clear what everybody in your organization is making. Um, I, I don't know. I don't well, there know. is a funny TV commercial about transparency. Yeah. I forget what they're selling, which is the way of great commercials. Yeah. And, and they're going through, um, you know, uh, showing somebody around the office and, yeah. and pointing out all the transparencies, including so-and-so. You don't want to get back downwind of him on Taco Tuesday. Oh, my God. I mean, things yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, this is transparency laws that address salaries. Uh, and whether we need laws that do this or not, uh, you know, I'm not going to say. Well, I will say. The answer is no. But, uh, yeah, I learned that from the commercial. Yes. But in any event, <laughs> and yet 
you have it. But so what the article's about really is when you about hockey in particular. And there was a wonderful experiment they were able to conduct through hockey because they were, as a union negotiation, as a result of union negotiations sometime some 20 years ago or so, uh, hockey salaries became transparent. And overnight, all the members of the hockey team suddenly knew what the other players on the professional hockey teams were making, what their teammates were making. So they, is that true in other sports? Uh, everybody know. knows what everybody's making. Uh, I think and I think they know all, they know a lot, not necessarily by rule, but just because it's covered by the press in such a way. I'm sure they know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's even true in the law to some degree. It was never you know people never knew. And now you have uh, magazines and newspapers covering the law business, and they publish these firms, the partners are making this, the associates are mm-hmm. making this. So there's more transparency. Um, well, it, it, there are a couple of interesting points about it. Um, they do say uh, uh, generally that one of the issues of the transparency is creates a lot of dissatisfaction. And this is, I can tell you right now, it's true of the law too. I, I saw this. Uh, People want to be paid well, but they really want to be paid well relative to others. We care, this is a quote from the article, we care less about what we make than what we make in the context of our peers. That is absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It so, makes sense. So it creates a little bit of, you know, people can say, gee, I'm making a great living here at a law firm. They say, yeah, but so-and-so at X firm is making more than me. I'm much smarter than they are. What's going on? Or, or I'm working as hard as they are. Why am I not getting right? As these, much money? these are, but even beyond what the boss should pay me, even looking at other organizations, saying mm-hmm. that person's getting more than me. Uh, what, what's what's happening here? So it creates dissatisfaction, even if you're well paid. Uh, so it, it's kind of. Uh, I'm not saying it's totally unexpected, but it's a very strong uh, impulse. Uh, in any event, here's what happened in hockey. Um, Two things that are both instructive. Number one, it's not like when pe- it's not like the players who were turned out to be paid less well stopped playing hard. That didn't happen. What happened was the opposite. They played even harder, but they played in a particular way. They played in a way that they thought would be rewarded by the metrics that were being honored by the pay scale. In other words, they all became offensive players. Mm-hmm. Players started trying to score. Mm-hmm. more than anything else, even to the detriment of their defensive efforts or their otherwise team-oriented efforts. Mm-hmm. The result was they did increase, the, a lot of individuals did increase their scoring for the purpose of getting higher salaries. They took more shots and scored more goals, but that, again, this is the article, but that didn't make them more productive. In fact, the opposite, when they were on the ice, their teams were outscored by a wider margin. They had changed their play at the expense of their colleagues. So they didn't get raises? Uh, they probably, they may or may not have gotten raises. They're not tracking down to the individuals, but the fact of the matter is that it... It wasn't it, good for the team. It wasn't good for the team. Uh, and long run, it had an interesting effect, which is a felicitous effect, a positive effect. The transparency really forced the owners to be much more rigorous about rewarding or not rewarding people in terms of the play that contributed to the team. And as a result, uh, salaries began to reflect much more accurately the contribution that individual players were making to the team's success. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, whereas before there wasn't much of a relation between total team salaries and team success, a few years after this, there was a very strong relation because the ownership now is very much on top of how compensation 
or to be attuned to the to the accomplishments of the team, and therefore there was a direct relationship between you know uh, between pay and reward. I don't even know what that means. What it means is that some, it was a much so, more rational sense of compensation now, so that teams were now paying uh, based on how much individuals were contributing to team success. And they could see... But how did they quantify that? They, they probably thought they were doing that before. No, not entirely. They were sloppy about it. Okay. They were just paying what they felt they had to do in negotiations. Yeah, they quantifying yeah. the defensive efforts yes, yeah, in addition did. to right. the goals. You can see the goals. You can count them up. All right. They were, and plus, they were disciplining their negotiations that way, such mm-hmm. that they were saying, we can't pay more for this. I don't care if that person walks or doesn't walk. I'm not going to be... You know, I'm not going to let leverage govern my decision making. I'm going to just do it based on the merits, and that that worked into a much more rational sense of compensation for the league as a whole. So, to me, that's very interesting. I can see as you, it's a little less interesting. But the, <laughs> no, I'm just leery about transparency. Oh, I'm not saying I'm for transparency. I think it's uh, it creates a lot of bad feeling unnecessarily. I mean, it's, uh, it's just a complicated uh, yeah issue in, I, in all walks of life. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, I. You know, I think yeah. I agree with that entirely. It's, it's not like every thought that everybody has has to be shared with everybody else, and, right. and everybody doesn't need an insight and it's into what's going on. Not necessarily productive. To no, do it's, that. it's 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 a matter of fact. It's likely counterproductive. Um, I'm with you. Back to my keeping up with the trends. Yes, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I went. Uh, looked in the New York Times uh, food mm-hmm. section yeah. category. All right. Whatever. Right. And a big story about butterboards. Butterboard. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. Apparently, it's a TikTok sensation. Yes. You know, we love a TikTok (laughs) sensation. Anyway, apparently, all the rage, you smoosh some soft butter out onto a board. Yeah. Sprinkle it with interesting things. It could be flower petals. could be herbs. Could be fried slivers of garlic, yeah. drizzle a little hot honey mm-hmm. on top. Some, you know, salt would be the least exciting. You know, all manner of things, and then uh, yeah, I mean, jam. Some people do pumpkin puree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, serve it with bread yeah. or cookies or crackers. Yeah, and uh, people scoop into it and. Spread it on the bread and mm-hmm. munch on it. It's a, you know. Bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bread and butter. It's, I knew it would catch Well, it's on. quite attractive. Amazing. If you see the butter boards, they're very pretty. But they're also huge. They're huge. Um, you know, it'll be like a big... Uh, How do you fit that in your refrigerator? No, you don't. Number one, you don't because you want the butter to be soft. Okay. Oh, the butter okay. has to be soft to do it. Yeah. All right. And you set it out for people to eat. All right. And it's only, we can only do this now because we're back to communal eating. Some people, you know, don't think that's terribly sanitary or whatever. But, you know, I can see doing it, but you'd have to invite a hundred people over to for consume, yeah, some of these butterboards that you see online. Yeah. You need, you need a little mini butterboard. Yeah. Well, but, listen, uh, you know, butter you know, butter with things uh, stirred listen, in can be really I tasty. I remember my mother telling me a million years ago, she said to me, you know something? Bread and butter is all I need. The rest, you know, who cares? It's all you know, that's really butter. true. If you have a really good piece of bread yeah. and uh, some nice butter, yeah. 
that's all you do need. Yeah. I'm not sure you need the hot honey, etc. Oh, I'm sure you don't. Yeah. But she she said you also don't need real honey. She was saying you butter need- got a raw deal for a few years because you know it's perceived as unhealthy. Yeah, that's not. True. And everybody was eating, you know, margarine and right. non-butters. And then it was all about drizzling olive oil, dipping your bread in olive well, oil. There's nothing wrong with that. No, it can be tasty too. Yeah. But uh, there are much there are worse things to eat than butter. But I, you don't want to eat a lot of it. Yeah. Okay. But all right, I'm looking forward to it. I have a lot to look just forward Google to. Just Google butterboard between the uh, spray and, on dress. And uh, get it ready for your next cocktail party. Spray on dress party. and the butterboard. I think we have a lot to look forward to this fall. That's all I'm saying. Uh, all right. So here's an article called "A Mustang uh, Mach E in the Wilds." Of Quebec. So here's what this fellow does. His name is Jack Ewing, writing for the Times. He says that Congress has allocated billions of dollars to build a network of electric vehicle charging stations along major highways. Quebec already has a network, and the system offers a glimpse of how essential access to charging will be to the success of electric cars. So he says, okay, Quebec's ahead of us. Let's see what the future is. I'm going to take my EV, in his case, a Mustang, and take a long trip in Quebec, round trip, 850 miles or so, and see how smoothly this works out. All right? And I guess the thought is he's going to prove, you know, the future is here. Mm-hmm. Turns out the future is not entirely here. Uh, it's, it's coming, but it's coming uh, come somewhat slowly. He says, look, they have, he's very encouraged. They have twice as many fast chargers in uh, Quebec as they have in New York State, even though Quebec has fewer than half as many people. So they're really there. Let's see how this works. Uh, But it doesn't work that great. He has a Mustang that has a 210-mile range. So he says, first of all, let's acknowledge that when you have a 210-mile range, whatever your range is, the manufacturer really says 80% of that is what you should count on. Okay, you're going to fill it to 80%. You're going to rely on 80%. You don't really have the, the 210 uh, miles. You said you charge to 80% to preserve battery life. That's what the automakers tell you to do. So it's not even that good, but fine. Uh, he does some uh, consulting with people about the trip, and he gets a map, or he, or he uses his phone to, to identify where all the chargers are on the trip. And it looks like it's, it's highly doable. He says, and yet... To prepare, I packed the Mustang with a sleeping bag, a tent, and crackers and cheese in case I was going to need a rescue party. Mm-hmm. All right? So right away you're saying, really? Is this the way I want to take this long trip? I'm taking a sleeping bag because I'm taking an EV. And sure enough, uh, it's a challenge. He says the secret is to schedule your charging stops to coincide with meals or otherwise worthwhile use of your time. He manages to do that, Right. Uh, however, he has a couple situations where at one point, you know, he gets down to 25 miles, only only 25 miles left as he approaches his hotel, but he gets to the hotel, but the charger in the parking lot doesn't work. Mm-hmm. All right. And then he's punting around the city in the cover, in the, dark, in the gathering darkness, uh, but he finally finds another charger. So he's okay. He gets to this small town called Amos, where the mayor drives a Nissan Leaf, an electric car. And he says, look, you got to be a little careful. Uh, the mayor says to him, I've had a few situations where you're getting very low. What you do then is you turn off the heat 
and you bundle up in thick mittens, hat, and boots. So take that with you. So I'm ready. I'm saying to myself, how can you possibly do this? Mm-hmm. All right. And sure enough, uh, he gets to a point where uh, he farther on the trip where he's 25 miles uh, to spare, uh, supposedly, when he gets to the next electric circuit. But he recognizes it's a fluid estimate. And suddenly he's panicking. He feels he's not necessarily going to make it. Um the car keeps recalculating how close he's going to come. And sure enough, he does feel he has to turn off the heat. He puts on the gloves. He puts on the mittens. He puts on the hat. And uh, he just makes it, right? Mm-hmm. And then he gets out of the car to charge and um, blackout. There's a storm and there's a blackout. <laughs> <laughs> and he has to wait out the blackout. And then he gets to uh, charge, and then he gets back, and uh, whatever. And you're saying to yourself, really? Really? Uh, so I don't know. I don't know at the end of the day if you come away thinking that uh, the future, as, as, as represented by Quebec, is, is really there for e- EVs, or whether, in fact... Uh, well, the point is, you probably want to do that test drive in California, not Quebec. I don't know how many EVs. Stations I, 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 I think you need less uh, sleeping bags. Well... It, Look, let me put it this way about the challenge. Quebec has a lot of empty roadway, all right? So he is on long stretches. So that doesn't make it more challenging, right? But uh, it tells you that New York has a ways to go before it has many charging stations as Quebec. And Quebec is really not, you know, that that comfortable place for driving with an EV on a long trip. So we have a long, long way to go. That's all I'm saying. All I'm saying. Go ahead. So... uh... During the uh, pandemic, Ranger and Nico were living with us, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't unusual. Say, you know, we said, uh, "You need anything from the grocery? We're heading over to the grocery. Do you need anything?" Mm-hmm. And Granger would say, "Yes. Can you get me some packs of frozen dragon fruit?" Right. And we were like, the first, you know, nine times we heard this, we are like, whoa, what the heck is that? Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really cute fruit. It's actually uh, comes from a cactus and uh, very popular for things like smoothies. And it became popular with some farmers in Florida uh, because it was bringing uh, good prices. And uh, this all came to a dramatic halt this year. Um, because the Florida farmers were getting some competition from farmers in Ecuador, Peru, and Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year, uh, you know, I mean, uh, um, the Ecuadorian farmers extended their season. Okay. So the um, Florida farmers have like a, I don't know, four or five month season. Ecuadorian Farmers had an eight-month mm-hmm. season, and they rushed to market to offload fruit, uh, theoretically because of unusual weather, um, problems, you know, uh, civil unrest in the country and inflation, these fears, those things were going to interrupt and completely destroyed the price um, for dragon fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, for these uh, Florida farmers right. went from uh, like 70 some cents a pound mm-hmm. 
to down to just pennies. Wow. And in some cases, the uh, you know the distributors, or whatever, were telling the farmers, I, "I can't take your stuff at all. I don't need it." Mm. And so you had guys who were just uh, you know um, pretty much dumping their crop yeah. and selling the trees mm-hmm. on the side of the road. Mm. Um, pretty devastating. And you know, mind you, dragon fruit. Sells for like seven ninety nine a pound retail. Well, maybe that <laughs> doesn't make any sense, but um, yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, the, you know, it's it's really caused a terrible situation uh, for these farmers. Some of them, it was you know, it was like a temporary glut, and now the market's coming back, mm-hmm. and they're recovering to some extent. But uh, for some farmers and some, you know. Uh, timing of their crops, uh, the, you know, the deal is done. So um, that's a little bit rough, but it's, you know, it's amazing. Um, uh, going from being a fruit I never heard of, really. Yeah, but... To, see, you know, I, I had seen them in the, in the, the, the that's store a, for years, but didn't really know what they were. Well, but that's a story with global markets. I mean, that's, that's why you get into tariffs and whatever. Yeah, but you like to feel that uh, these other... Locations um, are growing during seasons when you're not growing. Okay, you might like to think that. Okay, but it doesn't necessarily it, have to be the you case. You know, and they, and they'll just uh, give a steady flow. Um, yeah, but but what I'm really saying is, and even if you if you take it away from produce, once you open markets up globally, which is uh, the general model, um, then you're open to all kinds of competition and. Listen, what's bad for the local farmers is good for the farmers in Ecuador. I mean, everybody's uh, trying to make a living, so it's a good news, bad news situation. Right. Uh, and, you know, you can be sympathetic, uh, sympathetic to the folks in Florida who had a tough time. And that's why you have tariffs, if right. you feel you want to, you know, protect them from that kind of competition. I right. should mention that their only problem is not just the um, competition. Yeah. They've also been struck by what everybody, you know, has what? been struck with these last couple of years, increases in the costs of okay. labor, yeah, yeah. Um, materials, fertilizer, yeah. et cetera, and so forth. So it's just a I also bit don't understand why it's seventy ninety nine. You would have thought that the price, even at the retail uh, level, would plummet if, in fact, there was uh, a surplus on the market. I don't understand that. But uh, uh, whatever. Well, I think an awful lot of it is... Um, being sold to be processed and frozen, mm-hmm. uh, so I I don't I just don't know how the market works. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. You know, avocados had something like that. Even Christmas trees. Even Christmas trees. Supply and demand goes up and down. Um, good crops, bad crops. People get out of the business. Uh, it's a tough way to make a living. All right. So um, finally, uh, I mentioned there, there's another play. Uh, which happens to have a Jewish theme, is uh, Leopoldstadt, which is a new play by Tom Stoppard, uh, which is reviewed in the Times today and uh, by Jesse Green. Um, and uh, what what do you think uh, of the review? I mean, what was your reaction? Well, I thought in many ways it was kind of a mixed review, but he does give it a critic's pick, yeah. um, which we've been led astray by right. before. Although... I am a Tom Stoppard fan. Yeah. And I have to say, this is a, a story of the family, the Mertz family. Right. And I have to say, uh, 
um, my friend Elizabeth Mertz mm. and I went to see Tom Stoppard's Arcadia oh, really? a few years ago in, on Broadway. And it was one of my favorite theater experiences ever. Yeah, I've never seen that. That was um, great. I, oh, it's, uh, it really resonated for me. What was it? What was Arcadia about? Arcadia was about it's about family history, um, landscape architecture, oh, right, the right, history right. of landscape architecture, right. archival research. Right. It was ringing a lot of bells for me. Um, but you know, again. It, to some extent, yeah. it's about family. Well, and, well, we've, um, we've seen other great stopper plays, too. So this is about a family that's in Vienna, and it's uh, sort of a long arc in terms of the family going from uh, the end of the 19th century all the way to 1955, which, of course, encompasses uh, the Nazis taking over Austria, where this family is uh, centered, uh, and all the experience they have with the Holocaust, or a lot of the experience they have with the Holocaust. And... Um, you know, a lot of it resonates. Well, it resonates with me, you know, as a Jew, too. And um, the funny thing is that, um, well, here's, here's what struck me. Uh, and maybe this is more about the circumstances than the play itself, and maybe people see the play. But they talk about the last act, which focuses on a character whose name is uh, Leo Chamberlain, originally uh, Leopold Rosenbaum, uh, but he adopted his English stepfather's name, because his mother says he didn't want me to have be identified with any Jewish relatives in case Hitler won the war. So they actually named him Chamberlain. And um, the uh, and this, of course, is Stoppard's story also, right? right? And this is why he's writing the play. As they point out here, and we all know, uh, it's close enough to autobiography. Stoppard was born uh, Tomas Strauchler in Czechoslovakia and received his new last name just as Leo does from an English stepfather. Uh, and Stopper didn't find out until late in life that he was Jewish. He was brought up as a Gentile. Uh, but he's, so he's reflecting now what it means in terms of the Jewishness. And what happened to this character, Chamberlain, is he has an exchange, um, as written up here by Green, uh, with uh, his Jewish relatives that experienced, uh, you know, the death camps and the like. And they say a second cousin is talking to him at the play, one who survived the camps. And he says to Leo, quote, you live as if without history, as if you throw no shadow behind you. And um, that's, um, that's tough. I mean, uh, Green himself says um, he feels that. Green's Jewish. I mean, you can't uh, avoid commenting on that when you're writing the review. He says he's Jewish. And he understands and he identifies with that. Um, it's, uh, he understands who the argument is meant for, but he feels as one of those people who are kind of, as he puts it, live in the bubble in between, who know about the past and don't know. Stoppard seems to place himself there uh, along with the Mertzes, and, and so does Green, and so do I, frankly. Mm. I mean, so you're, you're, you know, when you Jews post-Holocaust, you have relatives, parents, grandparents who had strong feelings if not experiences with the Holocaust. Um, your life is not that. But, you know, do you live as if you cast no shadow? Uh, uh, that's the tricky thing. And so it's a powerful theme, whether it works as a play, I don't know. It certainly gives you something to think about in the middle of the high holy days. Well, I think part of the point up. of this story is that uh, it <clears throat> follows this family who's living uh, without a clue. Yeah. 
that any of this could happen. Yeah. And then, of course, it does. And I think Jesse Green is saying, and we continue to live as if this could not happen. Well, you see, but that, that to me, that to me is more of a superficial theme. The idea of being vigilant against is happening again. Yeah. But I, I, even if, if, if you put that aside. Okay, I don't know if it's about being vigilant so much as. Well, complacency. Yeah. He says complacency, whether complacency is a moral failing is a vexing question. That's the way Green puts it. But it encompasses both those things. The notion of being vigilant, which I find a little more superficial. And, all right, so put the vigilance aside, because that's just self-preservation. But but how does one feel about, how does one reckon with this, with this history? What does it mean? Does it mean nothing? Um, or does it mean something in this case? What does it mean? I mean, that's, the, that, that's really what I think in my other readings of Stoppard, is what he's wrestling with. How should he feel about it? How should he relate to it? And he's coming back to this, his identity is a Jew for a reason, uh, but I don't know what that reason is. Except well, I would be very interested to see the play. Okay. All right. So, uh, as I again, as I said, we've got Yom Kippur coming, so it kind of resonates. But in, in any event, um, I think that's all we have. I think it is. All right. All right. So, uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper, and uh, we'll be back. <laughs>